0: Hi everyone, I'm Boomer Esiason and I'm delighted to have you join us here on our all-new Game Time Podcast. Now, we are thrilled to be joined today by the head coach of the Tennessee State Football Division II AA Champion Lipscomb Academy Mustangs. Now, he sometimes prowls the sidelines sporting a bejeweled souvenir of Super Bowl Thirty Five on his ring finger. I'm thrilled to welcome Trent Dilfer. Trent, welcome to our Game Time Podcast.
1: Thanks, brother. So good to be on the show.
0: All right, Trent, concussions, trying to prevent them via more aggressive definitions, roughing the passer, dominated the early part of this NFL season. Has the league gone overboard in coddling our quarterbacks?
1: I know this is going to be a popular belief, but yes, I believe so. Um, And I can say that at the same time, say I love that we're more careful about head injuries, especially. Um, But come on. I mean, I think one thing that's not being talked about, too, it's going to be really hard to compare this generation of quarterbacks to your generation. Uh, your generation, in my opinion, was one of the greatest generations of all time in the history of the game. Um, how do we compare the Warriors that played the position? You, Jim, John, Warren, um, all those guys. How do we compare that generation that stood in there? Troy Aikman's a great example Uh, Stan Humphreys, who I'm sure you admire, he would take these kill shots and still rip the ball 40 yards down the field. Like it's just a different position. Um, Now, if you know, if, if me and you knew that you were never going to get hit, that all you're going to do is have guys come in and kind of tackle you by the waist. I are 245 pounds. You know, I squatted 600 pounds. I could shed some of those arm tackles and keep a play alive and get to the perimeter and create explosive plays. Like, I think that's why you're seeing this game just change. And I, I don't like that we can't compare Patrick Mahomes to John Elway. I, I just don't think you can have that conversation. They're playing different games. Now, I'm not taking anything away from these quarterbacks. They're, my jaw drops on how good they are. Uh, you're also handicapping, your are handcuffing defenses. Like The key to playing defense is to cut the head off the snake. Is to take the quarterback out of the game and in a physical way, not injure him. Um, and to get him off his game and the way you do that's with pressure. And, and now we're just, we're creating a, basically a flag football game for the quarterback.
0: You know, you know, the NFL about as well as anybody. Now there appears to be some ticking time bombs out there with Dan Snyder in Washington, Deshaun Watson in Cleveland. You know, how can the NFL defuse them? Do you think they're going to be able to get through this whole thing with what's happening with the Washington commanders?
1: No, I'm going to be honest with you. This is where I'm glad I'm not on ESPN anymore. Um, I don't have to study this stuff. Um, I, I would be lying to say that I have read everything, watch this stuff closely. So I'll speak more from 30,000 feet. I do believe PR is the most important part of the league right now. Like they're how they represent themselves to their core audience. Uh, and they have to handle this well, because if they lose their core audience by handling it wrong, uh, you're talking about some, uh, some catastrophic economic um, ramifications. So, Again, without trying to speak as an expert on these particular issues, uh, I do know, and I would say this without a, with a lot of confidence, that the number one thing going on Park Avenue is their reputation uh, and how they represent, how they handle these things to their core audience.
0: You know, it was interesting. Of all the things that you get lathered up about, you said that the 20-hour rule is the dumbest rule in college football. And why do you think it's so bonkers? I actually kind of agree with you, but I want you to explain your point of view.
1: Because if you understand at most colleges what the core demographic is of your team, right? They need football. Football in its nature, uh, the camaraderie, the accountability, the discipline, the hard work that goes with it, overcoming hard things, doing it with one another, buying into something bigger than yourself, um, sacrificing some of your personal needs for the greater collective of your team, your organization. um, That happens with time. They need the time with each other. They need to be around one another. Uh, They need to grow, they need to develop. You're also talking about careers on the line. Uh, You have some incredibly talented athletes playing college football that aren't very good at their craft. If they had more time to develop their craft, they have a chance to, to earn a really nice living in professional sports. Even if they don't, they have a chance to learn really important principles of hard work and dedication and resilience and grit um, to push through hard things that will make them better professionals, will make them better husbands, will make them better fathers. Um, and people go, well, yeah, what's well, going to sacrifice academics? That's not true. Uh, the higher expectation you put on an athlete in its athletic context – the higher they'll perform in other areas of life. There's still plenty of time in the day. If you were so concerned with the with the student athlete's academic achievement, then don't let them have uh, PlayStation in their apartment, right? Don't give them Twitter and Instagram. Like those are the things that are taking them away from their academics, not their sport. I've raised three Division One athletes. Um, my middle daughter was the National Player of the Year, runner up, and a first team All American. Um, she was perfectly fine with as much of the uh, athletic rigor it took to be as good as she was with the academic rigor, 3.8 plus, I think, and still had a very vibrant social life. She eliminated the other stuff that got in the way of those three things. So uh, I just think it's a crock that uh, limiting the amount of time they can work, get better, develop a skill set, grow into professionals for this, because they think they're going to have higher academic achievement. I just don't think that's true.
0: Yeah, I'm going to ask you uh, really quickly. I'm going to ask you about quarterbacks and you're going to tell me which one you're going to take. It's not for any sort of controversy or any of that stuff, but if you had a game to win, I'm going to ask you about a bunch of quarterbacks. Do you want Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady to win a game? Tom. You want Tom. Do you want Dak Prescott Or will you take Jalen Hurts in a game against each other? Oh, this one's brutal. I'll take (laughs) Dak
1: with the existing way Kellen Moore is calling offense, not the way he did when it was like, let's throw it 52 times a game. I like this balanced approach the Cowboys are using with Cooper Rush. I think Dak's going to be awesome in that.
0: All right. That's great. We're talking with Trent Tilfer here on the Game Time Podcast. And Trent, as we get into your latest gig at Limpscomb Academy in Nashville, you know, there are an estimated 170 former NFL players that are now coaching high school football. I'm just wondering what the special attraction is to all of us ex-football players. Man, there's so
1: much. I I'd say the biggest thing, I think you have like these two buckets of football coaches these days, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but you kind of have your ambition coach, where this is a profession to them and they're gonna start at one level and perform at such a level that they climb the ladder and get to their ultimate goal. And then you have this group of passion coaches. They do it because the passion for young people, the passion for the game. Um, And I think that's why a lot of NFL players are finding their high school niche coaching because it's so passion driven. Uh, Now, some of us get to do it at a very sophisticated level too. You have great resources. You have great players. You get to play at a very high level. Um, But ultimately, this is a passion gig. Uh, every day you wake up, the hair in your arm stands up. Uh, you know you get to influence, positively influence a lot of young people. Uh, you know you get to help a lot of them reach their dreams. You know, if, if you're playing at a high le- enough level, you get to help shape, mold young people from a football standpoint to maximize their potential and and get what could be up to a quarter million dollar scholarship. Um, help them on that road to getting that. So uh, it's very fulfilling. Uh, it fills the it fills the football bucket, which we all need, right? You need it, I need it. When you're done playing, you still need that football bucket to be filled. Uh, but it brings so many other things um, to you as a person and to others in the football landscape besides just winning and losing on it.
0: You know, you've said that very few people get to wake up and the hair on their arms stand up because they're excited to go to work, and that's what I've been able to do. And now I assume this has something to do with you coaching a very good football team, too. I would think.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I and I don't shy away from that. Like I, I do think I crave the uh, highly competitive, sophisticated, multi-scheme, high level of athleticism football. I mean. I, You know, you play it for so long Then I studied it. You know, when I did TV, you know this about me. It was more than just talking. I still studied the game. I was watching tape. I was taking that quarterback lens at looking at the game. So when I started coaching, now we didn't start that way. We started in a Dust Bowl. We had 38 guys on the team that won three games in a couple years. It wasn't very good. But you could see as more kids moved into our community, as the players that were here developed in the weight room, developed their skill set, that we could implement some highly sophisticated stuff. And we we do play a very high quality of ball. Um, A lot of college coaches that come through compare us to like an FCS level program, even though we're at the high school level. Um, So, yeah, it fills that bucket of really good football and all the holistic purpose-driven stuff that, that really wakes me up in the morning excited to coach.
0: Yeah, people should also know that you're the head coach of Elite 11 as well now, which is a nationwide competition for leading high school quarterbacks, something that wasn't available when we were playing high school. That's for sure. I can tell you that. Now you said it's bigger than football. So you figured out a way to teach them real world skills and tell me about some of the stuff that you've actually taught and brought to them and how do you make them self correct themselves so they can be better players and people.
1: I love that you said the self-correct piece. Now, first of all, say we. I never talk Mm -hmm. about Elite 11 and say I, and I don't talk about the Mustangs and say I, um, because it takes a ton of great people. And you know this, like when you're the head coach of anything, you're a byproduct of the people you surround yourself with. And and one of the best things we did with Elite 11 was uh, we hired a bunch of really talented, ambitious, um, good men early on to become kind of quarterback mentors. So, yes, they're helping them with all the technical stuff. And, yeah, they're helping them climb the ladder of achievement. And they're helping them better drops, better throws, this and that. But they're also helping them become better men. Um, and that's why we kind of call it the quarterback mentor thing. I think Jordan Palmer is a great example of that. Quincy Avery is a great example of that. These guys that started in this space with Elite 11, and they've kind of branched out and created these community of quarterbacks Um, the self-correction part's a big piece of it. We're we're trying to teach life through football because football, at that stage is the most important part to them. And we understand that we embrace that, but we really want to be able to give them the opportunity to learn life and come together and unite. And a lot of these social issues that we're dealing with in our country, we address those within the elite 11 community, um, helping them become proactive and making this world a better place. Uh, and then on the field, I think the self-correction piece is amazing. It's, it's really a contradictory statement. I'm the head coach of a camp series competition that is all about um, having coaches help you get better. Yet my number one message is you don't need us. We want to get you to a place where you don't need us. Because we're not there on third and six versus an overload to the boundary that you haven't prepped for. You got to figure it out. We're not there when you dirt an out route because your feet are wrong. You got to know why you dirted it. We're not there when you misread a two-high shell that rotates to a one-high shell and you throw your two-high look. Like you have to learn on your own and be able to correct in the moment. It's the same in life. We can't hold your hand as you're dealing with. An issue with your girlfriend or a family issue or a PR issue or dealing with a team issue. Like, we want to help you give these, give you these skills and learn from our mistakes. And I always say that, like, you don't have to learn from your own mistakes. I made every mistake there is in the book. So I'll share them with you. Try not to make the same mistakes I made. Uh, but at some point, they got to correct themselves. And I think ultimately, that's probably the best thing we've done in Elite 11 is we've given kids the skill set to figure stuff out. In on the fly while they're going through these, these dynamic situations on the field and off the
0: field. You know, Trent, I can think of some NFL quarterbacks that could use that help right now. All right, we're just getting warmed up with Trent Dilfer. We'll explore his journey from the Monterey Bay to the Music City when Game Time continues right after this. All right, welcome back to game time, everyone. You know, when he was in high school, Trent Dilford's mother, Marcy, recalls he was probably a much better basketball player than a football player, adding that the first time his name was, he was named player of the year, and when they turn on the TV lights, He was just like a natural. He's always liked the limelight. Now, you were the Santa Cruz Coast Athletic Player of the Year in basketball and golf, but not in football, Trent. I didn't know this. And as I was looking through your bio, I was like, wait a minute, timeout. I figured that you were going to be this highly recruited quarterback out of high school, but Colorado State, Oregon, Utah, Utah State, they wanted to recruit you as a tight end or a linebacker, which kind of makes sense to me too as well, now that I I see how big you are. But uh, how frustrating was it for you coming out of high school not being recruited as a quarterback?
1: You know, I don't remember it being super frustrating. I was honored that they felt I was a good enough athlete. I just had my mindset. And I had a stepdad. You know, I grew up on the back of a blocking sled. My stepdad was a ball coach. Uh, He was a big part of my life. I had two dads growing up. My stepdad just really kept enforcing to me that I was going to be so much better than I was at the time. And I kind of bought into that, that I was a project and I needed somebody that would buy into the project, so I really wanted to play quarterback. Um, I was not a very good high school quarterback. I was a good, I was a really good athlete in a small community, um, running around and making plays, not necessarily playing quarterback. I was a very good basketball player. I could have played at like that Santa Clara level of basketball um, and golf. I, I fell in love with the game of golf. I was a two handicap my senior year, so. A lot of people wanted, you know, maybe as be a big, huge guy that hits bombs and, and plays golf. But I really wanted to play quarterback. It took Fresno State uh, to take a chance on me. And actually, it's a great story how it happened. They were recruiting a quarterback that was number one on their list that was in our region. Uh, and they were coming to watch him play basketball at our home gym. And I happened to be the matchup against him. And I went for like 44 points, dunked a handful of times, uh, was player of the game. We smoked him. And. Rich Olson, who later on from Fresno went to Miami with Coach Erickson, coached NFL for years, came down on the floor and said, listen, you're you're not even on our list. Would you take a trip to Fresno this weekend? And back then, you know, this is not when you're a junior, you're getting offers and going on these trips. This is senior year winter after the season's over. (coughs) Excuse me. And I got in the car and we're driving from Santa Cruz over to the Central Valley, Fresno, California. I remember asking him, like, where's Fresno? I also remember getting into the Jim Sweeney's office right when we get on campus and meeting Coach Sweeney and saying, I'm in, I'll accept. And he laughs. He goes, I haven't even offered you yet. Like, I just was so excited that somebody was going to give me a chance to play quarterback.
0: Yeah, you know, he said he saw a diamond in the rough. And according to then – Bulldogs head coach Jim Sweeney, he saw more raw ability in you than any kid they've ever had at Fresno State, which is an amazing compliment, and that you had this Schwartzkopf personality when the game starts. You know, what exactly does that mean?
1: Well, I don't know what it means. He used to say it all the time, and I never had the courage to ask him. Um, I know I've always been fiery. Uh, You know, it's one of the reasons I admired you as a player, Brett Favre as a player, like these guys that wore their emotions on their sleeves, they're willing to get in uh, you know, metaphorically a fist fight on the field. Like it was do or die. Every player was the most important player of their life. Like that's just how I grew up being the son of an offensive line coach. So um, I was very animated. Um, I was very physical. Uh, you know, I was an option quarterback my freshman year. My first touchdowns as, as a college player were load option plays where I'm running over linebackers and safety. So um, I just enjoyed that physical nature of the game, that fiery piece of the game uh, it's who I was. I, I actually think one of the things that derailed my career a little bit was I tried to be something I wasn't. You know, I was. I bought into this. Everybody has to be Joe Montana. Everybody has to be Tom Brady. Everybody has to be the stoic, calm, never animated player, and it kind of robbed me of my juice. Um, and that's my fault. I think I would have been a better player in the NFL if I just maintained conviction on being me. Philip Rivers, one of my favorite quarterbacks of all time, because he's never been anything but himself, right? Like you that's can true. criticize him, you cannot agree with it, but he was he was unapologetically himself. And I wish I would have been unapologetically myself in my career, because that's really what made me a really good college football player. And one of my teammates gravitated to, to me so much was because every play, truly, Every play was the most important play in my life, and I would do anything for my teammates.
0: You know, Trent, you were a great college player. You were actually the Whack Offensive Player of the Year your junior year, and you decided to come out of college a year early. I I spent five years at the University of Maryland, and I loved every single year that I was there, and it allowed me to grow up and become more mature before I got into the NFL. Do you regret coming into the NFL a year earlier? I kind of do. It's a
1: double-edged sword. Yes, from an emotional standpoint, uh, I've mentored a ton of kids that have battled this coming out early, staying another year. And I've usually told them this story that I would have been a better teammate. I would have been a better leader. I would have been a better member of society. I would have been more mature. I would have been more capable of being a CEO of a team if I would have stayed in college. Longer now. We had nineteen guys that left that year. We had nineteen seniors that were on that Fresno team that was pretty darn good. I was the twentieth. We had nothing behind us. Um, There was a concern of for my health. We lost the entire offensive line. All the skill guys except one couldn't stop anybody on defense. Like that it kind of came down to that. So there was like this logical piece of, do you stay healthy and go now? Cause you're going to be one through seven really was the projection in the draft. Or do you stay? And my parents really were pushing me to stay because they knew that I wasn't quite mature enough to go handle the life of the NFL and move across the country potentially. And, you know, I've just newly married to my wife. We're still married 29 years later. uh, More credit goes to her than me. Um, but, you know, it was just, it's a hard one. I, if you just forced me to give an answer, I would say I should have stayed.
0: You know, Trent, this leads me to this thing about you and your career because you played on a great Ravens team, for sure, and they had one of the best defenses ever in the history of football. But people started describing you as a game manager because of that defense. Is that a compliment in any way or is that some sort of insult? Well, I know it's not meant to be a compliment, um, and it's true. Like, I, I've never
1: shied away from this. Like, I think actually outside of 94, 95, 96, where I was truly one of the worst players in the NFL, not just quarterbacks, first part of 96, um, 2000 were the worst years of me playing the position from a physical standpoint. I was not very good in 2000. I was pretty good early on. Uh, when i took over the job but i was dealing with some major injuries too like major stuff that got fixed when i went to seattle it took a couple years but got fixed so yeah i mean i truly embraced the management job like i i remember Mm -hmm. sitting there in training camp when i got to baltimore i just come from tampa we're in the nfc championship game and i remember sitting with ray and shannon and goose uh harry swain uh i think stokely was there we're in this locker room and wherever we were in training camp outside of baltimore i said guys do you guys know how good you are like yeah we think we're pretty good i'm like no, 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 no. take it from a seven-year vet that just came from the nfc championship team that barely lost to the rams or an nfc championship contender that lost to the rams you're exponentially better than we were in tampa you're bigger you're stronger you're faster offense is way better Uh, We have more playmakers offensively. You have veteran leadership defensively, a future Hall of Famer sitting here. Like this team is, can be great. So as the season unfolded and Tony started not playing well, and I could kind of see the writing on the wall and I was getting healthier. I'm like, I'm going to take over this team, but I don't have the juice. Like I can't play the way I played in 97. I can't play the way I played in 98. Like I got to play a different style of football. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I was very average. I mean, very average. And there days in practice, I was bad, like puke bad in practice, dealing with some of this stuff. So, in game, I was very strategic on learning the lessons that I learned as a young 12-year-old cutting up 16-millimeter film and putting on the washer and dryer, like <laughs> uh, field position, possession time, um, being efficient on first down making sure that we never put the defense in a bad position. If I was going to take a chance, where do I take take a chance? What side of the field? And does the risk equal the reward? Like if I took a chance, it was going to be a touchdown or something bad. It wasn't going to be a six-yard completion or something bad. And I remember my brain, it's like a computer with football. It would just be going off these situations within the game. I remember taking a sack that actually won us a game on a bootleg, <laughs> understanding the timeout situation <laughs> Brian Bill calls a bootleg on a third and seven at the end of the game. And instead of throwing it away, I fell to the ground and let the defensive end tackle me after wait, waiting four or five seconds, knowing that that would get the clock going. They'd have to waste their time out. We punt the ball. They're backed up. They don't have enough time to go against our defense. So it was a horrible way of playing, but I wouldn't change it for the world because it allowed our defense. I, I think it's the best defense in the history of football um, to play its best. And ultimately will help us win a championship.
0: Don't you ever apologize. You guys won 11 straight games when you took over in December, January, and I think actually the end of November, that included as well. So don't you ever apologize. I don't ever want you to hear you ever say you're sorry for playing quarterback for that great football team. And speaking of getting no respect, I, I was just wondering that if I were in your shoes and I had just won the Super Bowl, and now I'm wondering what am I going to do now next year, and they go out and sign... Elvis Gerback and bring him as quarterback. How defeating was that for you? It's awful.
1: I, I say this all the time. Like I've dealt with a lot of tragedy in my life. I have zero bitterness in life in general, except for that. It's the one thing I still don't think I've let go. I've tried, I'm 50 years old, raised four kids. Had a lot of responsibility in life, had a lot of neat experiences. It's the one thing that I, I've tr- prayed about it. I've thought about it. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. <laughs> it's so hard for me to let that go because I knew I'd be healthier the next year. I knew I could get back to where I was playing. I knew, I knew offensively we could be so much better and paired with a great defense, like the chance to repeat, to climb the mountain again, to do something nobody think you could do. Like I was so excited coming back from Disneyland, like, Oh, we get to do this again. And I'll never forget. I'm on my way to the Espies, uh, to represent the team at the Espies as team of the year. And I get the call from Matt Kavanaugh and he's just apologetic in the call. I mean, he was devastated. He's like, I'm trying to know how to say this, but you're a free agent. You're number three on our list. And I was like, well, excuse me. Like, didn't like a month ago, we just hoisted Lombardi and, and it was just this conversation that they felt that I would not be, I wasn't as talented. As the other two that they were looking at, Brad Johnson and Elvis Gerbach, that they felt like they needed to be more explosive offensively, which I agreed with all of that, but was never taken into account that I felt like I could be that guy. Like, yeah, give me an offseason to get healthy again and improve and work with the same receivers and, you know, grow the offense from a schematic standpoint. Like, I really felt like I could be that guy. And it was devastating. I remember just being in the tank that off-season as a free agent. I had some really good opportunities, that off-season as a free agent, and I didn't even explore them. Like, I, I thought about retiring. I thought about, like, what more can I do? Um, <sighs> so uh, that, that was a dark time, and and again, I'm being very honest, I, I still don't think I've gotten over it.
0: Yeah, you're never going to get over it, nor should you. If you're a competitor like the way you are, you know, that, that's hurtful. You won a Super Bowl, they should have kept you. All right, we're gonna be right back to talk about the event that turned Trent Dilfer's life upside down in mid-career. back everyone now in early 2003 while Trent Tilfer was still rehabbing a torn Achilles a family trip to Disneyland was cut short when their five-year-old son Trevin became ill and, and had an unidentified virus that had attacked his heart and after a 40-day hospital stay Trevin passed on for the Dil- Dilfers and for Trent, uh, life's never been the same. You know, you're not a drinker, uh, Trent, and I know that you've spoken about this openly. That's why I'm asking you about this. But you did start drinking after that, and everybody can understand why. You gained some 30 pounds. Uh, you sank into depression. You've been open about that. Through all of it, you were trying to hold it together for your family, and I'm sure it wasn't easy. So how did Matt Hassel, back at the time he was the starting quarterback that you were mentoring in Seattle, come to the rescue?
1: Uh, what a great question, Boomer. Yeah, my story has been well documented. All the things you said are absolutely correct, and I love p- talking about this piece of it. Obviously, you don't love talking about the hurtful piece of it, um, but one of the most special relationships in my life, in our lives, are Matt and and Sarah Hasselback for this reason. Um, it started off rough in Seattle. Like he was traded there to become the dude. I come back. I come out of Baltimore. I'm mentoring him, but then I play better than him. Then I get the job. Uh, And then I actually get his contract in one going into the 2002 season. So now he's kind of on the scrap heap and I'm, I'm the guy. Uh, So that was tough, but we developed a really neat working relationship through it all. We developed a really neat um, bond. Our families did through it all. We were raising kids at the time, a little older. Uh, theirs were young. Uh, Sarah leaned on my wife, Cassandra kind of for some parenting stuff and it just really became a neat relationship. And Matt, to his credit, and uh, O2, as my backup, was amazing. Um, he was just so encouraging. He had really turned the corner in his life. He had grown a lot spiritually and emotionally. Uh, and we just felt this really nice friendship. And, and I tear my Achilles. I'm back to the backup mentor role, um, yada, yada, yada. And then that offseason, we lose Trevin. And uh, as I'm going through this depression, as I'm making poor decisions in my life, I've kind of distanced myself from the Seahawks and excuse me, I'm not crying. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to hold it mm. back. And, uh, Matt calls me one day, uh, and I'm pretty offended. You know, I'm like, why are you calling me? I was in dark place and I, I wasn't real nice to him as he calls. And he's like, Hey man, you got to understand something. You got to get back up here. I'm like, how can you say that to me? Like, how can you ask me to come to Seattle from California with all my families going through, I'm hanging on by a thread here, man? Like, I'm I'm literally holding my family together by a thread and trying to wake up in the morning uh, to live life. He's like, no, you don't get it. Like, there's others that need you too. Like, this team needs you. You need us, but we need you. And it was the first time I felt like, outside my family, I was still needed. I still had purpose. Yeah, okay, I wasn't going to play quarterback for him, but I was a team captain. Uh, I was a leader on that team. Um, I had established myself as some of the moral authority in that organization. Uh, and he was like, we're getting ready and we need you. And you need us. Like, you need to burn, you're a dude. Like, you need to burn guys. And I've talked to your wife and she's on board with this. And your kids will be fine. She's a great mom. You have a great support system. So get up here and get back to life. And I think that was his message was just get back to life. And we're so big into mental health around here. We, we really try to identify guys going through mental health issues, women going through mental health issues and try to support them because I went through it. Like I think Matt had a wisdom beyond his years that I was dealing with a lot of stuff that part of the healing process was going to be being around people that loved me, that cared for me and that needed me. Uh, and he got me back up there and the organization was incredible um, they gave me time to get healthy physically. I had to lose 30 pounds. I had to rehab Achilles and I had to get right emotionally. Um, but I'm, I am forever have a love affair with the Seattle Seahawks organization, Matt Hasselback, his family, um, because how well they um, dealt with me in a time of
0: crisis. You know, Trent, how do you celebrate Trevin's birthday uh, and his life each year on his birthday?
1: Yeah, please join us. Ribs and root beer uh, yeah. every year on his birthday. Um, there's people all around the country that I'll get DMs from on social. They'll text me. It's become a tradition that they'll go to their local rib spot, uh, get some root beer and take a picture and send it. It was his favorite. I don't know why it was his favorite meal, ribs and root beer. It became a tradition for shortly after his uh his passing. And every year, um it's a cel- we've used it as a celebration. We know where he's at, um, where we've healed or are still healing, but feel at peace with him not being with us and people around the country kind of celebrate his birthday with us with ribs and root beer.
0: I can't even imagine the emotions that were flowing when your alma mater, Aptos High School, named his football field in Trevin's memory. What was that day like? It was special.
1: Um, it's a neat community, Aptos in, in California, on the, on the northern coast of California near Santa Cruz, if you're looking for <laughs> everybody knows where Santa Cruz is. Uh, it's a community that serves a lot of athletic teams, not just the high school team. We really wanted a community field um, that lacrosse and soccer and all the different sports could uh, could utilize the facility. So we were really active in helping get that thing built and honored that they would name it after Trevon.
0: You know, do you have a message for families uh, that have gone through something like you've gone through, like you've lived it publicly and people hear you talking about it and we know that it's an immeasurable loss and it it comes with an an awful amount of pain. I've dealt with CF families in in our world as well that have gone through what your family's gone through. What is your message? I'd say my
1: message is a couple. It's tiered. Number one, don't hold it in. Um, You know, it becomes poison when it sits inside you and you have no outlet. Uh, The outlet needs to be healthy. Right. Don't do destructive things as an outlet, like I did early on. Um, and you need people like this is why we're designed. People need people uh, and you need people in your life that you can talk to um, that have lived similar tragedies um, that are wise and give you sage advice um, that will sit and cry with you. I'm a big believer in counseling. Uh, I think there's professionals that, you know, they work really hard to become professionals in this realm of grief management. Uh, we sat with some great ones. I had the greatest one ever. I got to tell the story. We're in Cleveland. I forget the guy's name. Hopefully he watches the show. He hands me this big book. It's like an exciting piece. He says, I wrote this Has everything to know about grief. And I'm like, what an arrogant, you know what? And he drops on the floor and goes, it's all just theory. He's like, here's the deal with grief. He looks at my wife and I, and he goes, everybody deals with it differently says, we're going to have some sessions here. I might not say a word, Trent, you might cry, Cass, you might yell. It doesn't matter. You got to get it out. This poison inside of you that has to come out, Uh, this pain, this sorrow, this grief. And and it helped me so much. I've been through so much counseling. It's helped so much. I encourage so many people around the country that are dealing with hard things, uh, emotional issues, mental health issues. Go talk to a professional. They're very good at what they do. And by the way, they're the best listeners you'll ever find. They're great at listening. And sometimes you just need to dump on them and you need friendly ears that can just listen and and help you process it all.
0: Yeah, a terrific message for sure. Now you transitioned from the field uh, to the studio with the NFL Network and then ESPN. Did you actually find broadcasting to be something that you fit very well?
1: Early, yes. Loved my first five years. Um, the travel gods, me. I'm not blaming anybody by myself. Great friends at ESPN. I'm not saying anything that negative about ESPN, but I felt kind of a tone change. Uh, my last handful of years, ESPN where it became more, uh, they wanted more conflict. They wanted more drama. Uh, I just didn't, that was not my MO. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to teach ball. Really. I think I'm a teacher by heart. Uh, and I wanted to teach the audience ball. Um, And when it became more than that, um, or extras, I would say it, I kind of fell out of love with it. And I was commuting from California. So I think there was a toll on my body, Uh, you know, red eyeing on Saturday night into New York, car servicing up to Bristol, working, getting back in a car, going down to another airport to fly to Monday Night Football on Monday, then flying back to California. Um, There was one year I had 48 weekends where I was in a hotel room because of football and because my daughters, three of them playing travel volleyball. Um, So it just became a lot. So I was relieved to leave TV, but early on, I really, really enjoyed teaching ball to an audience that maybe wanted to go a little deeper.
0: All right, so before I get into the Dilferisms with you, I want to check something out. I want to verify this with you. Something you reportedly said to your then-teammate Matt Hasselbeck who you just spoke so eloquently about in your relationship with him. He was then Seattle's starting quarterback. Now, did you really tell him, quote, you're not very good, you think you are, you're pretty, you throw a nice ball, you know a lot of Brett Favre uh, regurg- regurgitated information, but you're not very good. Now, I assume that Matt didn't take very kind to of that.
1: <laughs> he didn't, but he heard it. I will give him credit. Like he wasn't playing well and he couldn't understand why. And I believe we we're in coach Zorn's office late at night, one night, and to his credit, we'd have these late night. We grinded now. Like I taught him how to grind. It was, you know, it was eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night before he'd leave the office sometimes. And we would lock ourselves in that office and we'd watch tape and we'd watch our opponent. We watch ourselves. We watch other quarterbacks um, and study them and, and I just wanted him to really understand that I'm here for you, but I'm also going to tell you the truth. And this is what I know. I know that you're not a good quarterback yet. You have you have the potential to be great, not just good. But here's what's going to make you good. And to his credit, he listened. He became an excellent player in this league. Played longer than me, was more successful than me, won a ton of games, got it to a Super Bowl, really had a Super Bowl stolen from him. Uh, if you want to go back and watch that Steelers-Seahawks Super Bowl. Um, So, you know, I think he listened well and I think he appreciated it down the road once you realize, oh, okay, so it's more than doing what Brett did. It's more than throwing a nice ball like there's there's more substantive stuff to playing this position than what I know of right now.
0: All right. So your most famous ESPN Dilferism is turning a stinky sandwich into an ice cream cone. And I think we all know what that means. So I I just want to ask you about a couple other Dilferisms. You quickly tell me what they mean in English, in everyday English, if you will. Okay. Okay. And I, so you touched on this before. What is a quarterback who has DQ? What is DQ? DQs or dude qualities. Uh, Does a guy come in the
1: room, is he a thermostat leader or is he a thermometer leader? You know, a thermometer leader is going to react to the room. A thermostat leader is going to change the juice in a room. Uh, Dude qualities are also, does he bring the the temperament of his team up? Like, can he carry the the temperament of a football team? How does he handle locker room issues? How does he handle being the spokesperson, spokesperson for the team? Like, general, I'm the dude qualities. There's guys that have it. You have it. Jim Kelly has it. Warren Moon had it. John Elway had it. Brett Favre had it. Kurt Warner has it. I can go down the list of all you guys that were the best at what you did. You all have it. Then you go to these highly talented guys that, oh my gosh, they were top five picks. They should have been so successful. What didn't they have? They didn't have dude qualities.
0: All right. So how do you throw a receiver open? You know, that's one I actually
1: stole. Like, I don't know why I get credit <laughs> for that one. I stole that one. I heard it. I don't know. Before I started doing TV, and it made so much sense to me on changing the speed, the tempo of a ball, throwing it where he's going to be, throwing it away from a defender. Typically, it happens in your deep cross game where you're layering it over defenders. You're activating high shell players with verticals, and you're throwing out to a pocket. Like, you're taking him to the ball because that's the grass he needs to go to. You know, this happens in man coverage all the time. Uh, guys, tight man coverage, but the, the leverage players inside. There's nobody outside. So you throw a catchable ball, a couple bodies outside, and talk to the receiver with the ball, moving him outside. Uh, that's throwing a receiver roll from. But I'm not going to take credit for that one. I, I can't remember who I stole it from, but I stole that one.
0: I think the two best ever to do that are Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. That's just my opinion. All right. I, why I would, is. I all right, so why is arm talent better than arm strength? Yeah, this is interesting. This is one that's kind of been hijacked
1: and everybody claims it's theirs. Uh, I came up with that one because <laughs> I was really frustrated with the narrative that arm strength was so important. Uh, I do believe it's important. I'm not taking anything away from arm strength, but I, I, on my list of one to 10, it would be six, seven, eight. Um, and I was talking to an NFL uh, executive a general manager, this had to have been 2008, nine, somewhere in there. I'm like, we gotta teach people what really matters with arm talent. And he said, you just said it. I said, what, what did I just say? And he says, yeah, it's more (laughs) than strength. It's the talent Hmm. of the arm. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm like, so arm talent to me is, yeah, you have, you can throw a, you can be late on a comeback, double hitch it. Speed the ball up. Get it low and outside. That's arm talent. That also is arm strength. But ours also arm talent where you can take something off the last second. Because it's got to go over somebody. Or you got to drop it down three quarters to get around somebody. It's changing the tempo on the ball with the speed. It's throwing guys open. It's that ability. It's a, it's a big throw catalog. This is one that isn't talked about enough. There's a ton of guys in college that can throw target routes. Go around. Turn around, you're a target, I can throw you the ball. And everybody goes, wow, that's so cool. And I'm like, that's like 8% of throwing in the NFL. What about runaways? What about movement passes? What about off-platform passes? Like, this all fits into arm talent more than just arm strength. So, um, that... You know, that one, physicality and dime are the ones that I kind of feel are mine. The rest I probably <laughs> hijacked from somebody
0: else. I got one more for you, and I think that Patrick Mahomes fits arm talent because he could do it in so many different ways. And he also does something that you like to call playing off-platform. Is that yeah. good or bad?
1: That's really good because, as you know, like – and now on our era, it was a little different, right? Seven-step protection, six, seven men kind of create a crease for you to throw in – size matter like you're you're huge i'm huge we're both six four plus two now when we play 235 240 i think we're both bigger than that now um (laughs) but like you would have to sit in there and your base was important you had to step into your throws we're pumping the ball down 15 20 25 yards down the field Uh, you know those types of throws well now the game's changed so much that so much of this is spitting out to the perimeter so much of this you know bells and whistles in the back in the backfield change uh, you know misdirection stuff that you don't always get your feet right and can you still be accurate by being off platform meaning your your feet the structure of your base isn't ideal and i think you need to train that mm. i think another thing too is we found a generation of quarterback that's so much better against pass rush stunts because you know they used to do this to me all the time they would stunt the ETs and the nose games to press the pocket into me because if I couldn't step into it, I wasn't nearly as accurate. Well, if the defense can take away your feet, can take away your base, can take away your structure, shouldn't we train guys in the pocket to still be accurate? to still get the ball to the boundary, to still layer it over a Mike linebacker on a deep cross, to still throw a dig into the window. Well, you do that by saying, okay, I'm going to be just as good off-platform as I am on-platform. So that was a big point of emphasis. I did a study from night from your draft class all the way to the all every Pro Bowl, Super Bowl, quarterback till 2008, and I found some commonalities. And one of the commonalities I found with all you guys was that in a muddied pocket?s when your feet weren't perfect, you were still high, highly productive. So when we started the Elite 11 and kind of what now has become this nationwide training methodology, uh, one of my points of emphasis when I gave this kind of speech at Ohio State to a bunch of people was, we have to now train the quarterback to be as accurate, as efficient off-platform as they are on-platform.
0: Hence, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a man who loves ball. Our thanks to the great Trent Dilfer for joining us today. I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time with Norwegian tennis sensation Kasper Rude. Oh, that was great. I just actually learned so much more about football that I didn't know. It's unbelievable. <laughs>